Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, what is the last lucid dream that you had and what happened in it? Because I know you're a, you're a lucid dreamer of old. I, it was like this weird, I don't know how to even explain it, but um, I didn't expect that you were going to ask me this, so I'm not completely prepared. You didn't think I'd ask you about your lucid dreams? Well, in the not like my last, my last one. Well, if not the last one, what, what's an example that stands out in your mind? Okay, well, how about one where I, I've talked about my reoccurring dream of a dog mauling my face Mm -hmm. while I can't move, right? Right. And so eventually I got to the point where I knew that I was dreaming and I could tell myself, like I'd have a different uh, solution every time it happens Mm -hmm. to make the dog stop chewing the skin off my face. So sometimes I'd have to hug the dog, like embrace it back, even though it was mauling me. And then it would shatter into a thousand pieces. Which is an excellent example because mm-hmm. that example of a horrible dream flowing into a lucid dream works nicely with some of the stuff we're going to talk about here. Yeah, yeah. And actually, uh, we've had a lot of requests for this topic. Mm-hmm. And, and we've touched on it before. Yeah, we've certainly mm-hmm. talked about it in passing. But it seems like when we covered virtual sex and we talked about the possibility of linked dreaming, it yes. came up again. So Dan in Oakland, who also is, a, is an experienced uh, lucid dreamer, he wrote us about it. And uh, Joffrey talked about how awful lucid dreaming might be, especially if we linked our dreams. Yes, um, I believe we read the latter uh, on, on the air. And I have Dan's that I'm going to read at the end of the Yeah, yeah, which, which would be a nice insight into this. So anyway, we wanted to talk about it in full for you guys. All right. Well, the term lucid dream, obviously lucid dreaming as a thing has existed for a very long time. Mm-hmm. But the term lucid dreaming dates back to 1913. And you had Dutch psychiatrist Friedrich Wilhelm van Eden. He coined the term. He identified nine different types of dreams, which, I granted, I don't have to list all nine, but I'm going to because they're pretty awesome. Well, and he spent 16 years of his life uh, studying this and coming up with these categories. Yeah, I mean, he, he's an amazing dude. So... Number one, and I like to think of these as kind of like items at a, a Chinese restaurant or items at a fast food restaurant where you could order them up. Be like, oh, I'll, nice. take a, I'll take a number yeah. one with a side of four. But uh, number one, initial dreams. These are the very beginnings of sleep when the body is in a normal, healthy condition but very tired and the dreams sort of flow in right off the bat. Mm-hmm. Second type, pathological dreams in which fever, indigestion, or some poison plays a role. You know, a bit, bit of undigested potato, that kind of thing. Okay, too much uh, pepperoni. Right, or, you know, fever dreams, intense situations. But it's yeah. due to something not being right in mm-hmm. the body. Number three, ordinary dreaming. Good old vanilla dream. Number four, vivid dreaming. All right, it's rich. It's it's the kind of thing you're talking about all week and boring your significant other with. You're like, it's a color that does not exist exactly. in nature, and I cannot explain it. Yeah, <laughs> Number five, the symbolic or mocking dream. Van Eden tells us that this is uh, the kind of dream where we get this intense feeling that circumstances are being arranged or invented by intelligent beings, quote, of a very low moral order. And this also ties in erotic dreams. But there's this sense that it's not just you, like you are encountering something else, like an external force. Mm -hmm. That's the feeling. He's not saying that you're actually encountering some sort of entity, but that's the feeling that you get in the dream. Right. Number six is the realm of dream sensations, all right? There's no vision. There's no image. There's no event. 
There's not even a word or a name, but you have this long period of deep sleep where the mind is continually occupied by one person, one place, one remarkable event, or even one abstract thought. Have you ever had one of these? This one is outside of my dream experience, I think. No, I don't think so. I dream a lot about the material that we research, Mm -hmm. so sometimes there's a concept that I'll but not just ones with such singularity, one mm-hmm. topic. Number seven is the lucid dream, which we will, of course, discuss in more detail. Number eight, and this is where we get around to the mauling dog, is what he called the demon dream. And it's an always very near before or after a lucid dream in Vad Eden's experience. And it involves something demonic, a horrific attacker, and it's just really intense. So immediately I'm reminded of your example of the mauling dog. Mm-hmm. And uh, Radiolab recently did an episode that dealt with lucid dreaming in which a, an individual kept having a recurring dream in which someone was at their door pounding on the door and they, they were going to come in and just attack them. And it was mm-hmm. like this fierce, confrontational, violent dream. And he was able to eventually break through that into a lucid dreaming experience. So those would both be examples of that. And number nine, the final in this series of dream categories that Van Eden gave us, is the wrong waking up. And this occurs always near waking. We have the sensation of waking up in our ordinary sleeping room, and then we begin to realize that something isn't right, and there's like some sort of inexplainable movements, strange noises, and then we realize we're still asleep. Those are the worst, because you spend a lot of time thinking that you're waking up and getting ready and preparing, and only to realize that you are still sleeping. I remember having them in high school or junior high, where I was, inevitably I was staying up too late at night, because you're in high school or junior high, and your sleep patterns are weird. And your hormones are going nuts. Yeah, and and so uh, I've been up way too late, and then I'm having to get up way too early, and I dream that I have risen, that I have showered, mm-hmm. that I've dressed, and, uh, and then you I'm have ready risen. to head out. Yes, I have risen. <laughs> and then, and then I realize, oh crap, I've, I haven't even woken up at all. I just did all that work for nothing. Well, see, yeah, yeah it's exhausting work. The waking dream is also uh, something you see a lot in films, especially, it seems like John Carpenter used this several times where, you know, the character wakes up, you think he has woken up from a dream. Mm-hmm. You're typically like a weird dream or a nightmare or something crucial to the plot. And then they look around. Oh, everything's normal. Everything's normal. Oh, there's a zombie. And then they wake up for real. And it's a great sort of wham, wham, double pow kind of cinematic. Fool them here, distract them here, and, and really get them. It's kind of cheap, too. But when used to great effect by a, a talented director like Carpenter, it really packs a punch. It's a great narrative device. So, And literature as well. Of those nine, have you had all of those, with the exception of maybe that uh, the dream sensations? Yes, I would say that. And I'm sure everybody has experienced all those to some degree, right? Because this is pretty... And and I I think most people usually remember their dreams. Mm -hmm. And if you don't, later on in the podcast, we'll talk a little bit more about how you can have better recall of them. Yes. But let's talk about this lucid dreaming. Yes. This is the item we're ordering here today, the number seven. That's right. This is generally thought of as a dream where the dreamer is aware that they are dreaming. And being aware of the dream, they are able to manipulate or outright control the circumstances around them. Mm-hmm. And generally this involves flying or just complete power over their surroundings. I have a friend, Elena, who took some classes in lucid dreaming. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they were physical classes or if she attended them through dreams or, or how exactly they were. <laughs> I think it's something in New York. But She lucid dreamed a workshop. Yeah, but, okay. but her, her lucid dreams would be that she would grow to an enormous size mm-hmm. like Godzilla and start crushing buildings. So she has a lot of unresolved issues. Uh, (laughs) Well, and that's the beauty of the lucid dream, right? I mean, the the sky's the limit. You can do anything that you want. Mm -hmm. Um, You can shrink yourself to, you know, nano size or you can become magnificently large. And it's such a beautiful idea because it's through dreaming, through Mm -hmm. 
the neural gear that we're born with, we're able to achieve the ends of some of our most outlandish technological dreams. Like all these ideas of virtual worlds that we can move around in sandbox worlds in a video game that we can mm-hmm. control. And, and an immense amount of talent and effort and time and money goes into the creation of these things and is going into the creation of virtual reality technology in the future. But we already have all of that gear in our head. And the idea that with a certain amount of training and a certain amount of forethought and presentness that we can achieve those same ends is just really remarkable. Well, and here's the deal. Tibetan Buddhists have been hip to this long before Western civilization. Yes, they were looking inward far before most of the rest of the world was really looking that far into the the human psyche and into the human mind. Yeah, and while we may use lucid dreaming to fly or for erotic adventures, Mm -hmm. Tibetan Buddhists actually practice a kind of lucid dreaming called dream yoga, and this is a way of recognizing the world for what it is, free from illusion. So they're using it in a more high-minded way. It's about making discoveries about the way you think and the obstacles your mind puts in, in your way and achieving better clarity. The ultimate goal is a state of meta-lucidity in which you wake up from reality. I love that. Yeah, and I also like the idea that in the same way that you're in a lucid dream, you are realizing, you know, all these rules and all these things that seem like they matter so much in this dream, these all the confines, the howling dog or an attacker at the door, all these things that are pushing in on me, they're not real. And if I just let them go, then I have this immense freedom in my life. You can take that into the waking world and say that if you were actually awake in the waking world and you're hip to these forces that are all around you, aspects of the mind, mm-hmm. uh, the ego, and, and all these forces, and we've talked about so many of these things before, but all these forces that are dictating the way that we feel the world around us in a mental sense, if we're aware of those, then we can have a lucid experience of a different type in the waking world. Right, because the mind makes these paper tigers, whether or not you are awake or asleep, right? And mm-hmm. to recognize that the mind is uh, creating so much of your reality is the, the end game here for, for our friends, the Buddhists. But it's a very interesting way to look at it. Okay, so let's get down to some of the brass tacks about how we know it's real. Yeah, because for a long time... It was kind of thought of as maybe sort of made up or magic, you know, because it sounds like magic. It is magical in its... Uh, it's got in, some hippy-dippy to yeah, it as well. Re- in its reality. And so for a long time, the, the really serious scientific-minded types, if you brought up the idea of lucid dreaming and controlling your dream, they would be like, eh, I don't know, I don't know. I think that maybe you're, you're making that up. Yeah, but although we have all long suspected that dreaming could help us with these sort of breakthroughs, right? Mm-hmm. And that there was a possibility that we could control our dreams or at the very least know that we were dreaming. Right, and then there are, of course, individuals along the way who were doing it. And so <laughs> even if the, the experts were telling them it wasn't happening, they had a pretty good idea about what was going on in their head. If only there were a way to test it. Right. How could I test this anecdotal evidence? Well, it happens that lucid dreaming occurs during REM sleep, the fifth sleep stage, and the body is basically paralyzed, which we know, with the exception of the eyelids. And this is kind of an aha moment for a psychophysiologist, Stephen LeBerge, who monitored subjects with electroencephalograms, EEGs, which map electrical brain activity, as they slept. And in the experiment, subjects used prearranged eyelid movements to signal they were lucid dreaming to uh, Leberge, right? Mm-hmm. So 
He's looking at them, he's monitoring them, and all of a sudden he sees their eyelids flutter. He then looks at the EEGs and he's able to confirm that they're actually in that REM sleep and that this is all corroborating. So that's one instance we have where we can see that people are outwardly signaling that they're in REM sleep, and we can we can say, yes, you are. According to Scientific American's John Horgan, LaBerge showed that activities such as counting numbers or having sex evoke similar neural and physiological responses in both the dreaming and waking states. And if your dream self holds its breath, then your real self does too. And moreover, events take about the same time to unfold in lucid dreams as they would in real life, which is a little bit different than what we've thought before. We've always thought about dreams being compressed. And then there's also some interesting data from Dr. Matthew Walker, who is the director of the Sleep Lab at Berkeley. And uh, he found that the lateral prefrontal cortex, part of the brain that deals with logic, may be responsible for a lot of what's going on in lucid dreaming. So during REM sleep, this part of the brain is supposed to be asleep or inactive, but it's possible that it wakes up so that dreaming and logic are both working at the same time, which would then enable the dreamer to suddenly have the mental capacity to say, hey, this is a dream, and this is what I want to do with that dream now. You and I are talking about this briefly before, and uh, I was sort of saying that that is one of the things that can get in the way when you lose a dream, the mm-hmm. fact that you're bringing logic into it. But you can always kind of get over it because you know you're dreaming, and this is the way that I kind of square this idea of your logic center coming online while you're dreaming is that now your logic center is under a set of different constructs, I guess, for the dream logic. Mm -hmm. So even though what you're doing in a dream might seem absolutely crazy or inconceivable, your logic recognizes you're in a dream and allows it. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. This is kind of a tangent, but there's a fantastic short story by South American author Jorge Luis Borges called The Circular Ruins, or, mm-hmm. is, or perhaps it is in The Circular Ruins, but uh, keywords, circular ruins, in which a <laughs> man, a, a dreamer, begins to dream a living being. He dreams the dream child piece by piece and cell by cell and until it eventually achieves reality. And I, I won't spoil everything, but do check that out. It's a very short story, but just very poetic and chock full of wonder. Someone who's definitely concerned with the, the borders of reality, right, right? Mm-hmm. and crossing those borders. This is really interesting, too. The visual cortex and parts of the motor cortex in some motion-sensing areas deeper in the brain are really active during dreams. So this is why we have lots of motion and visuals and not so much stuff that you can feel in your dream. Some people may have had that experience. But for the most part, we're much more visual and motion-oriented in dreams. Yeah, I can't remember ever having smelt or eaten anything in a dream before. Yeah, I can never remember something like stunning in terms of like a pungency of smell or something. It's always usually visual or some sort of action like flying. These are some interesting looks into the brain here. I also wanted to note that German researchers gave lucid dreamers specific instructions to make a series of left and right hand movements separated by a series of eye movements, again, that that eye fluttering, Mm -hmm. while asleep. And the researchers were able to perform brain scans knowing what was going on in their heads. The eye movements undertaken in dreams are known to show up on electrooculogram, giving the researchers markers to know what the dreamers were meant to be doing at that point. So this is really interesting in the sense that you can start to map out actions in dreams Mm -hmm. and begin to see what people are doing. Now, this is like... Pretty rudimentary, right? But can you imagine within 10 years 
being able to look at the brain and start to figure out what specifically people are dreaming about, what sort of stories that they're weaving. This was from Current Biology, and the name of that paper is Dreamed Movement Elicits Activation in the Sensorimorder Cortex. So, you know, just a little FYI. In case, you know, in 10 years you want to get your dreams mapped out. Well, let's take a quick break. And when we return, we'll talk more about lucid dreamings, and we'll also discuss some of the ways that you might bring lucid dreaming into your life. All right, we're back. So uh, lucid dreaming. You obviously have done this before. Mm-hmm. I do not believe I've ever lucid dreamed. I've had the odd flying dream. I've had the odd attackers coming after me dream. Lots of what I loosely call movie dreams where something amazing, I guess they're vivid dreams under the nine-point scale that we were discussing earlier, but very vivid dreams where something really imaginative is, is happening. But I've never had a lucid dreaming experience. Okay, so I will say that in the last couple of years, I haven't had as many lucid dreams, and I'll tell you why. Mm-hmm. I haven't been getting as much sleep. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, I got a little rug rat, right? She's mm-hmm. three years old, so... There you go. One of the first things you have to do is get enough sleep. And the reason is because the more REM, the better your chances of lucid dreaming and recalling the dream. And we go into REM every 90 minutes throughout the night. But each REM period gets much longer and occupies a larger chunk of that 90-minute cycle each time. So if you're only sleeping the first part of a normal eight hours of sleep, you're getting very little of that REM sleep. Mm -hmm. So if you wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning and 4 o'clock in the morning, it's harder to get back to sleep. Then chances are you're not going to have that good time REM sleep that will induce or help to induce a lucid dream. I should also add that in terms of dreaming in general, some sleep aids will also affect your propensity for dream remembering. Yeah, or yeah. not remembering, right? That's usually the case, right? That you do, you have a foggier recall mm-hmm. if you're if you're taking stuff. But you can still try some of these things. You could keep a dream diary. This seems to be very helpful for people. Um, you can set an intention, which sounds kind of yoga-esque, but if you want to fly in your dream, you could look at a picture of a person flying right before you go to bed and tell yourself, I would like to know that I'm dreaming and I would like to fly in my dream. And that seems pretty simple, but it's, you know, the brain, as we know, is, is really great about taking suggestions and mm-hmm. acting on them. There's something called the mild technique that LaBerge calls mnemonic induction of lucid dreams. And that involves waking up an hour earlier than usual in the morning and recalling your last dream and then going to sleep again while thinking, again, setting an intention. Next time I'm dreaming, I want to remember that I'm dreaming and I'm going to lucid dream. And also you should know that lucid dreams occur most often in the morning just before awakening, which makes sense when we talk about those longer REM periods. So get up early and then go back to sleep again with purpose. Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of it has to do with that waking period, just that millisecond when you're waking up and you begin to have this feeling, this really strong flooding of a dream, right, mm-hmm. coming at you. Instead of saying, oh, I need to get up and I need to get dressed and so on and so forth, if you try to just really bask And whatever emotions that are evoked at that moment, chances are you're going to be able to engage your recall a lot better. So how do you know when you are actually lucid dreaming? Well, one method that I've read is just simply to to look around you and start looking in a little more detail about what's actually in this world. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because that's one method that is often used is the idea, well, let me look around, let me see, and if I can realize this is a dream, if I can look for something. And I've heard that you need to go about this in your daily life as well. Like in your waking life, make a point of, say, looking at light switches and making sure they're there and that they work properly. Look at text and see if it's readable. 
The text thing is a big, mm-hmm. that's been a big clue for me because a lot of times I'll be reading or I'll be writing something mm-hmm. and the text keeps moving or I can see one sentence and then it all falls away. Right, you look at it and it's text and you look away and you look back at it and mm-hmm. it's something else. It's a pictogram or a smiley face or something. It's not going to hold. It's not going to be the same thing. Whereas in the waking world, I can look at this and uh, it still says the same thing it said earlier. Waking status confirmed. Right, or clocks, they don't have scrambled numbers, mm-hmm. right, in reality. But if you're dreaming, you're trying to get a beat on what time it is. Mm-hmm. A lot of times we'll see the same thing as the text, the, the numbers run around. So there are definitely hallmarks of this happening in lucid dreaming. Here's something that's just totally random, but I thought it was interesting. There is a theory of why there are so many flying dreams, especially in lucid dreaming. And uh, there's a a guy named Alan Hobson. He's a psychiatrist and dream researcher at Mm -hmm. Harvard. And he says that flying is the brain trying to reconcile the fact that we're under the illusion that we're moving. And yet the body is giving the brain data that it's immobile. And so in flying, we're moving, but our limbs aren't bending or moving. And I would be curious to know from from listeners, too, if they've ever had a flying dream and if they have, like, the typical reports of your hands being outstretched like Superman. Because that's that idea of, like, you're stiff. Mm-hmm. Like, you're not really moving, but you're flying. I definitely had that experience. This was the summer that The Rocketeer came out. While I don't think The Rocketeer is a movie that I would necessarily seek out to watch again, mm-hmm. at that point in my life, I was pretty obsessed with it. I, like, read the novel that was based on the screenplay, and I had at least one dream where I was The Rocketeer or I was in The Rocketeer's Get Up, flying stiffly over, like, a coastal area, and it was really... Really beautiful. Okay, so you've had the, the stiff-armed dream. Yeah, and it was definitely stiff. I wasn't just flopping around. Right, right. The other side of that is every vision that we have, every fiction involving a flying character, they tend to be kind of stiff. They're Superman, or they're, they're the Rocketeer, that, or, or they're Commando or... Cody, or some other character, and they're they're very stiff with their rocket suit because nobody wants to watch Superman just flop around in the air and look I like he's just like, thrown away from explosion. I would love like they'll do some ballet in the air. <laughs> well. Be- Beautiful. Well, I'll tell you one example that comes, and I didn't have this growing up in that movie that I've mentioned before, uh, Hanuman versus Seven Ultraman, mm-hmm. the uh, Thai Ultraman movie in which Hanuman, the Hindu monkey god, shows up. Mm-hmm. He flies through the air. Well, he flies through the air very stiffly, but he flies through the air with a dance pose, a very artistic pose to him. Now, so it's, he doesn't. He is stiff in that he has no motion other than he's flying through the air, but his body language is very fluid looking. I'm going to challenge myself to fly and do like the robot. Like yeah. dance moves next time I'm lucid dreaming. I am going I'm to work watch on that Hanuman versus Ultraman, the seven Ultraman, every night for a week and see if I start dreaming like that movie. Because even if I don't fly, the, the results are going to be amazing. Speaking of another movie, real quick, Waking Life, if you've never seen this movie before, it's very interesting. It actually talks about a lot of these concepts, mm-hmm. lucid dreaming, and also what is reality and, and what is illusion. I need to see it again because I think I fell asleep. Uh, when I saw it it's a time. it's a talking movie yeah but but nonetheless very interesting all right so let's talk about whether or not we can harness lucid dreaming and dreaming in general to help ourselves and I'm thinking about nightmares PTSD and the you know general problems that we have in life right in the same way that you were able to defeat that dog that was mauling your face and in the same way that in that episode of radio lab that the individual was able to eventually deal with that troublesome nightmare that he kept having that reoccurring nightmare in which someone was at his door it has been proposed that by commanding the power of lucid dreams 
chronic nightmare sufferers could actually deal with their problems. Yes, it's true. And I was actually thinking, too, about Elias Howe. We've talked about him before uh, when we talked about real science that came from dreams. Mm -hmm. And this was a guy who figured out how to use a needle in a sewing machine that would puncture the cloth, right? He dreamed about a tribe that was dancing around him holding spears, and he noticed the spears had holes near their tips. And boom, he realized a solution to making that happen. So that's just a good example, I think, in general, of how your mind can work on these problems. Did I tell you about this? I um, this, this came off of a week of playing a lot of board and card games. And I think I had recently seen a, an episode of Mystery Science Theater that had some magic in it. But I dreamt of a card-slash-board game that didn't exist in real life. And so, I mean, still doesn't. Yeah. But I woke up remembering the mechanics of the game and how the game more or less worked mm-hmm. with some certain blank spots regarding the... Shoots and ladder? No, it wasn't shoots and ladder. I, and I, I, I can't reveal it exactly how it works because maybe I'll do something with it at some point. But it was one of those dreams where I woke up and I'm like, wow, I have this idea. And it was interesting for me because I get a lot of sort of visual ideas, like there's a particular kind of monster that shows up in my dreams. I could write a story about that or something. But this is one of the few times where I had a dream in which there was like a system mm-hmm. in play where I woke up not as much inspired by just the imagery and magic of the dream world, but there was a more or less a concrete idea there. Yeah, and again, the prefrontal cortex usually is it goes a little bit dim when you're dreaming, not mm-hmm. lucid dreaming, but just dreaming. And we've talked about this before with jazz musicians. We've seen this part of the brain kind of dial it down a little bit because, again, your logic center sometimes can impede creative thought. Right. So it's really interesting that, that this is the realm that we can get in there and there are no rules and you can start to, to work out solutions or really cool, creative ideas and board games well, there are no rules. that are not shoots and ladder. <laughs> there are no rules yet, but if 10 years in the future when we can monitor dreams, who's to say, right? Yeah. Maybe there will be dream laws. Dream laws. Dream police. Okay, so I'm going to talk about this article uh, in Scientific American. It's called How Can You Control Your Dreams? And according to Deidre Barrett, she's the assistant clinical professor of psychology at Harvard, something called image rehearsal is a way to overcome the nightmares, as you talk about, Mm -hmm. or PTSD events. Therapists or researchers have the person work out an alternate scenario they want the dream to take, and they ask them to close their eyes, and they imagine this. And they generally talk them through a kind of really vivid enactment of it so that they're they're starting to pin those details in the person's mind. And we've talked about this before with memory, too, about right. really pinning that information into yeah, memory. The method of Loki, the memory palace. Right, yeah. the memory palace and making sure that, that this person is really attaching meaning to these objects. So that's what these therapists are doing. And usually the person incorporates some degree of the rehearsed scenario at bedtime or listens to a tape where the therapist or researcher is recounting the alternate scenario. And they've had some really good results with this. Cool. And then there are various devices that have come along that may aid us in lucid dreaming. Oh, yes. Are you referring to the LeBridge's goggles? Yes, the Nova Dreamer. And this is an invention of the Lucidity Institute. And it looks like a cross between like sleep masks and goggles. And the idea here is that if you condition yourself that red light, flashing red light, Mm -hmm. means that you're having a dream. As opposed to, oh my goodness, I'm being pulled over for speeding. <laughs> if, if you can, if you can reprogram your mind to think flashing red lights mean, hey, it's a dream. Start doing whatever you want to do in the dream. Then you can wear these goggles, and they would be able to measure when you're experiencing REM sleep, and then flash in that light, and then you would be able to perceive that through your eyelids. 
And, and you would know that you, that was your cue. Yeah, that's your cue to start dreaming it up big time. Yeah, start lucid dreaming So instead now. of having to look specifically for examples of, say, dream writing or, or something else weird mm-hmm. in the dream that doesn't match up and would be your clue, this is like an outside force saying, hey, signal red, you've got a lucid dream opportunity here, go for it. And some of this starts to go into the territory of inception, right? Like planting dreams or, or planting these cues. Yeah. Though John Horgan hated that movie. Or at least he enjoyed it, but he did not enjoy the science of it. Which makes sense, right? I mean, he's this tried and true science journalist, and he found the, the waters to be murky. And they are. Sometimes the plot points mm-hmm. were, but, but still, I enjoyed it. Here's something about that movie, which I enjoyed as well. When these characters are lucid dreaming, mm-hmm. they create some of the most boring things I've ever seen in a cinematic dream portrayal. And one level I used to think I don't really care for this movie because if they're lucid dreaming they should really be wowing me with just a lot of crazy stuff but if you're bringing your logic into play then I can see where that could potentially null the powers of just pure imagination well, what, what part was boring to you Oh, that like the big city. They had like the city and there's a building. I don't want to get into spoilers too much, but there's okay. a there's a scene where there's like a big city around them, and it's just kind of it's creative in its own sense. But it's not. I feel like I could dream a better dream city. Is what I'm saying. Well, I know, but the thing is, the whole point of that movie is you're stuck in whomever's dream that is, right? Yeah. I mean, you don't. But they were in their control. own dream at this point. Yeah, but she was dreaming. Yeah, all right. And the whole point was she was creating the architecture for like a realistic architecture. Okay, you're what, right. We why, shouldn't get into this. Why do I this. want realistic architecture in my dream? I can have realistic architecture. Because he was putting her through the paces, <laughs> wanting to see if Grasshopper had learned well. Okay. It was that right. part of the, the movie, you know? Okay. Show me what you have learned, Grasshopper. But that's not what Leonardo DiCaprio said at all, just so everybody knows. Okay, so there are limitations to this, right? You can't exactly just jump into this. It's not just click your heels three times and you're going to be in a lucid dream. You've got to really want it. Even with fancy gadgetry involved, there's not just an on-off switch or a magic pill you can take. Though they have experience with the use of Alzheimer's drugs that aid cognitive processes and memory. So there are some experiments involving the use of a pill. But still, yeah, all of these things still require the dreamer to really want lucid dreaming to happen. Yeah, and I keep thinking about um, this Travelodge study that came out by, right. by the futurist Ian Pearson, who tried to imagine Travelodge of the future in 2050 and all the technology that we have at our disposal and what that might look like. His idea, and, and again, this is someone who is, um, he's got a lot of information and experience under his belt, so he's not just dreaming this out of nothing. Right, and he's, as we discussed before, he's a great futurist in that he's taking all of this information and he's extrapolating a future reality that is, for the most part, unmoored from our attachment to the way things are today. Right, and he says that developments in fabric technology and synthetic materials means sleepwear of the future will feature electronically controllable properties such as touch, sensitivity, shape-changing, thermal properties, and light emission. So his idea is that sleepers could get gently massaged in their sleep. Or uncomfortably groped by strange faceless demons. Right, and then, you know, red lights beamed into their eyes, and then they have to start lucid dreaming, boop, right then. Mm. But there is this idea that you could enhance your dreaming, that there may be some point in the future where we can enter into this state much more effectively hmm. and get groped, as you say. Uh, well, it's, it's interesting that we're talking about the future, and we're talking about the nine different types of dreams. It was one of the books in the futuristic uh, Altered Carbon series that Richard K. Morgan did, where he has a he has a future in which individuals are able to move their consciousness from body to body. Mm-hmm. You're only allowed to have one body at a time, but it means that one can practically live forever if one can afford new bodies. So you have individuals that don't have to deal with much in the way of physical illness 
you'll have individuals who end up voluntarily catching the flu just for the fever dreams or just you know just for some of the intense bodily experiences of the illness. Could I say that's not that's not a dream that I would want to inhabit. No, but I guess the thing is they're so jaded. They've tried everything else. They've had everything else in their multiple lives. So they're at the point where, well, what's left for me? I guess fever dreams. That's extreme, man, i got to say. All of this information sort of points back to this idea that we talked about this before. How much of our time we spend dreaming even while we're awake. We talked about daydreaming, right? Mm-hmm. It's by one account, at least half of our waking hours daydreaming. Right. And you can, you know, cultivate awareness on that level there, too. And I love the idea of the Tibetan Buddhists that we were talking about, too, where let's not be afraid then to take this concept into the waking world and think real long and hard about yeah. the various aspects of our thought processes that are dictating the way we experience waking reality. There's a great quote, and I may have read this one before, but it's, it bears repeating, from Grant Morrison, and this is from The Invisibles, Volume 1. He says, Your head's like mine like all our heads, big enough to contain every god and devil there ever was, big enough to hold the weight of oceans and the turning stars. Whole universes fit in there, but what do we choose to keep in this miraculous cabinet? Little broken things, sad trinkets that we play with over and over. The world turns our key, and we play the same little tune again and again, and we think that tune's all we are. Uh, So that's a quote I I keep coming back to. And then here's an older one. My eyes are getting dewy. (laughs) Here's one from 1874 from author O'Shaughnessy from the Ode to his book, Music and Moonlight. We are the music makers and we are the dreamers of dreams, wandering by lone sea breakers and sitting by desolate streams, world losers and world forsakers on whom the pale moon gleams. Yet we are the movers and shakers of the world forever, it seems. And you've probably heard everyone from Willy Wonka to Aphex Twin cite that poem, but it's uh, it's another sort of beautiful line that, that I wanted to lead out with here. Very nice. Let's bring that dreamy robot by. Yes, we have some listener mail to get to, and one of them is dream-related. As we mentioned, we heard from listener Dan. And uh, I'm not going to read all of Dan's uh, email, but he, he raised a number of really cool points, and hopefully he'll chime in with more after this podcast to give his lucid dreaming feedback on this episode. But he says, Robert and Julie, on one of your recent podcasts, you talked about how most people never utilize lucid dreamings for sexual experiences because they'd rather fly or be a giant. I wanted to let you know this isn't the case. He goes on to say, once you realize you're dreaming, the hardest part is to remember that you're dreaming. It's very easy to slip back into standard dreaming, out of lucid dreaming. Conversely, it can also be very easy to wake yourself up and waste a perfectly good lucid dream. So it's important to keep reminding yourself that you're dreaming. Looking at your hands helps for some reason. And whatever you do, don't open your eyes because you'll snap right out of it. I got to the point where I was having a vivid lucid dream every couple of months, so I started experimenting with the possibilities. First, I learned how to fly, which took a little practice. Eventually, I could do it quite easily. It's kind of like the story of Peter Pan, because you actually have to believe you can fly. Later, I started learning how to conjure objects. The first thing I conjured was a sword that formed in my hands. I tried to conjure people and places with much difficulty until I figured out a wonderful little trick, just find a door. Walk to any door and convince yourself before you open it, and whoever or whatever you want is behind it. I once used this trick to conjure a lustful, scantily clad woman and proceeded to have some great lucid dreaming sex. Let me tell you, it's right up there with flying. So there you go. Because we had uh, because a lot of people 
when they talk about their lucid dreamings, they discuss flying and growing mm-hmm. huge. And even Frederick Wilhelm von Eden, who coined the term in his descriptions of lucid dreaming, he tends to focus more and more on the fabulous aspects of it and kind of discounts the erotic side of lucid dreaming in his experience. So, Well, it's not really tea talk, you know. All right. Well, let's move on to another listener mail. This one is from Maria. Maria writes in and says, Hi, Robert and Julie. I've been listening to your show for a long time now and really enjoy it, especially the more philosophical topics. I wanted to write in about your episode on lust because there is something you didn't quite touch on, and that is the societal pressure that exists now to be lustful in the sexual sense, almost like the opposite of the prudence pressure that existed before. When we freed ourselves from those shackles, I feel like we went running too far in the other direction, and now the pressure is more on being lustful. I don't think people notice too much, but it is very apparent to me, being asexual myself, that there is a lot of pressure both from my peers and the multimedia. Now people see it as an expression of freedom and a pleasure that everyone should enjoy, regardless of whether they want it or not, and often attempt to cure asexuality or advise me to go to the doctor. I don't have anything against love and the free expression of sexuality, but I think people might need to tone it down a little. So there, there you go. I think that's some valid commentary there because, as we've discussed before, I mean, we live in this lust economy. We live in this world that is mm-hmm. just so into our and so open with our physical desires. And not everyone is really going to. I mean, some people are going to have a very oversexed mind, and they're going to definitely flow in that direction a lot easier. But then there are individuals who are, for the most part, asexual. That pressure is going to come on them unwanted. Right, and as you say, it's the, the lustful uh, commercial aspect of it. Yeah. So there's this idea that you want to lust after something, that you have to have that deodorant because there's a lusty woman smelling your armpit or something. Not you specifically. <laughs> that is an interesting uh, bit of commentary, and it made me recall, in, I believe it's called uh, Science of Lust. It's a discovery show, and they actually talk about asexuality, which is not something that is studied a lot or talked about a lot. So if anybody's interested in learning more about asexuality, how it's hardwired or not hardwired, you should check that out. One of my favorite characters basically asexual. That would be Sherlock Holmes. Basically an asexual character. And I have problems with adaptations that try and sex him up too much. But, yeah, um, you can't sex up the houndstooth. That's not what that's about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So he, he was always a great hero to me, especially in my junior high and high school years, because I'm like, like, ah, you know, all the multimedia pressures on me to, even then, even as you're a teen, there's all, you, you watch the, like, the Wonder Years and stuff, and there's, like, sexual pressure in that. But then you can turn to Sherlock Holmes, and you're like, ah, Sherlock Holmes is amazing, and he doesn't, he doesn't need any of this. There you go. Well, if you would like to share anything with us, be it Sherlock Holmes related or asexuality related, or more importantly, write to us about your lucid dreaming experiences. Are you a lucid dreamer? Have you attempted it and failed? Are you still trying? Let us know, and let us know what your experience as a lucid dreamer is like. Yeah, and you can also check out an article about lucid dreaming on HowStuffWorks.com, and it's written by Katie Lambert. It's really interesting. Yes. But do drop us a line. First of all, Facebook. You can find us there, Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Twitter, we are Blow the Mind. And there's a really cool feature right now called the Stuff to Blow Your Mind Photo Upload Contest. If you're listening to this particular episode around the time it publishes, you can find this link on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. You can find it on the HowStuffWorks Facebook account, and we'll also link to it on the Stuff to Blow Your Mind Facebook account. But it's a really cool upload tool. You take a cool photo. If you think it's mind-blowing and like a scary, gross, amazing, just, there are several categories. If you have an image that you think is really awesome and you took it, enter it there. Uh, you might be able to win an iPad. Yeah, you heard that. iPad. Yeah. All right. So, and do drop in if they do drop in. Email us at blowthemind at discovery.com. 
Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House of Work staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. Yeah.